Take your Bible with me, if you will, today and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I just want to say by way of beginning, by the way, tonight we are observing uh, communion. And I, I want to invite you to come back and be a part of the communion service this evening at 6 o'clock. Please be here for that. That's a, a special time in the life of a church, and uh, we want you to come and participate in that with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in just a few moments we're going to read the first 13 verses or all 13 verses of this chapter, but I just have to tell you by way of beginning that I have way more stuff that I'm going to be able to probably give you in this service, and I, I want you to be patient with me because really all of this needs to go together. All of this needs to be heard at once. It doesn't really need to be broken over two services. And the reason is because uh, the subject matter here is so vitally important uh, in the life of every church. Uh, if we want to see our church transformed. We want to see our church make a huge impact in this community. What we're going to be talking about today is absolutely an, an essential element. Next only to the preaching of the gospel itself and to the preaching of the word of God itself is what I'm going to be talking about with you today. And so if I can, I'm going to try not to break it over two services so that we can bring it all together and we can hear it all together. And those that, that aren't here because of the season of the year and the travels that are going on, I hope that you'll encourage them to listen to this message at a later time. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, and is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these next few minutes, help us, Lord, not to be distracted. If we just practiced what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 teaches, it would transform our church into a body of believers that everybody recognizes and notices has the presence and the power of God amongst them. And Lord, I pray that you'll help me to communicate clearly. There's a lot for me to say today, more than really should be said in the time frame that I have. But I pray, Lord God, that you will help me today to be able to succinctly and accurately represent what this text says. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody has aptly stated that ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. Think about that for a moment. 
We all know that if there were no people, of course, then there'd be no church, and if there were no church, there would be no ministry. But sometimes you feel very much like ministry would be great. Church would be great if it just weren't for the people. I'm sure that many of you know that a church gathering can be a place where you are blessed, where you are encouraged, and where you are strengthened. But others of us also know that it can be a place where you can be hurt, and you can be offended, and you can be wounded. And the reason for that is because church is a place that's made up of people just like you and me. People that are broken, people that have shortcomings, people that have hang-ups, people that have imperfections, and all of those things and others like them have a tendency to rub us the wrong way, and it challenges our will to even love them because we don't feel love toward them. Maybe that some of you are sitting in this room and you don't feel love towards somebody else sitting in this room. Or you may be a member of this church and you don't feel love towards some other member of this church. And yet the Apostle Paul is writing this, what we might call a poem or we might call a hymn about love. He's writing it to a local church. He's not writing it for a wedding as I read it yesterday. He's writing it to a local church. And he's reminding them that they have to learn to love as Christ loved. And that's absolutely an essential in the life, in the health of, of a local church. You understand that if you've been with us through this study, this is our 26th message, that, that the Corinthian church was not a friendly, it was not a welcoming kind of a place where you wanted to gather together. And Paul exposes here in this 13th chapter what is the real problem what is the real problem in this congregation? And it is there is an absence of love. I mean, they were one of the most gifted churches of the New Testament era. They were one of the most gifted churches of the first century. And yet the church was filled with envy and jealousy and conflict and confusion. It was hard for people to even see Christ for the mess that was in their midst because they didn't love one another. If you want to know about how special this church was as to its gifting, just listen to me read again from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, verses 4 to 7. This is Paul speaking about this church. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They came short in no gift. Every gift that was needed, every person Every gifted person that was needed was present in that church. They had everything you could have ever imagined that would have been wanted or needed in the ongoing of a New Testament local church, except for the fact that they just didn't love each other the way they were supposed to love each other. You know that sometimes the most gifted people can be the most difficult people to work with in a church? And that's the case that we find here in this Corinthian church. And so Paul writes this chapter, really, if you will, the very heart of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. He writes this chapter to a local church to tell them about the importance of the virtue of love and love specifically among themselves in love in the church gatherings. He says it's even more important than all of your gifts, and it's more important than all of your giftedness. In the chapter just prior to 1 Corinthians 13, he gives us a list of some of the gifts, not all of them, but he gives us a list of some of the spiritual gifts that are imparted to the church. 
But I want you to notice at the end of chapter 12, in the last verse, verse 31, the last phrase of that verse, after listing some of the gifts, reminding them that nobody, nobody has all the gifts, even though the church had all the gifts, no individual had all the gifts, he talks about these gifts and the significance of them to the local church, but then he comes to the last phrase of verse 31, and he says, yet I show you a more excellent way. In other words, here are all these gifts. God gives all of this by his grace. It's wonderful that you are such a gifted congregation, but I want to tell you about something that's even more important than the gifts that you keep talking about and the gifts that you keep desiring. I want you to understand that the more excellent way is the learning to love one another. Because without love, all the spiritual gifts combined are meaningless in their use. They're just a bunch of selfish, self-centered people showing off. But when all of our gifts are being used under the control of the Spirit of God in the attitude of love toward one another, it changes everything. And actually, I tell you that rather than spend your time trying to discover your spiritual gift, you'd do well to spend your time seeking to love others in the family of God, and then your gift or gifts would inevitably reveal themselves to you. God would reveal them to you if you just focused on the more excellent thing, which is learning to love each other. Just so you know, it's important to note that of the nine times that the word love is used here in six verses, of the nine times that the word love is used here, it's always the word agape. You know, in the English language, love is sort of funny. We talk about loving our dog and loving our wife. We talk about loving our house and loving our money, and we use one word that sort of covers it for everything. But in the Greek language, they had more than one word to use for love, and the highest form of love there is is the form that is described by this word agape. It refers to a selfless love for others a selfless love for others, a love that's like that of Jesus Christ who left heaven's glory to become a man, to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be forgiven of our sins and become his children. That's the kind of love, the Jesus kind of love that he's talking about in these verses. Just so you get a picture of this love and a few verses that extol it in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so, what's the next word, church? God so loved the church that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Or Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Or did you know there's another John 3.16? It's 1 John 3.16. And it says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. When you see these words love, nine times he uses the word. He uses the highest form of the word for love. He uses the word that's used to refer to the love of God when God sacrificed the best of heaven and Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross of Calvary. That's the kind of love we're supposed to be demonstrating to each other. I've been thinking for a long time about this chapter and trying to figure out how to describe this love to you, this love that God has shown to us and the kind of love that God wants us to show to others. And 
I, I think the answer, and I don't want you to turn here, but I think the answer, at least for this message, is in Romans chapter 8. We just sang some of the words out of Romans chapter 8 a few minutes ago. Beginning at verse 31 and down through verse 39, there's a list of some rhetorical questions. And the answer to all the questions is nothing or no. There, there isn't anything. Uh, nothing or anything. No, nothing that can separate you from, from Christ's love. So the, question is all, the answer to the question is always no. There, there isn't anything that can do that. But, but listen to how the questions go. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He comes a little later. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, he will give us freely all things. Or who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Or the next question, who is he who condemns? Or a little later, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he comes down and he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody said, Amen. But do you really want to know another way to think about what it means to love like God loved us in the way God wants us to love one another? It's found in that 31st verse. He says, what then shall we say to these things if, and here it is, God is for us. But what does it mean that God loves me? It means that God's for you. God is for you. What does it mean when we love one another? It means that we are for one another, not against one another. We want the best for the others that are around us. We don't want the worst for them. We want the best for them. We don't want them to get what, they, what we think they deserve. We want the very best for them. We are for them. When I love somebody, I want for them to know the best. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is laying out. We're supposed to be for one another and not against each other. We're supposed to desire the best for others, not expose them to the worst in us. We're supposed to forgive others, not reveal their faults for others to see. We're supposed to give ourselves away to others, not withhold ourselves from others. We're supposed to love others the way Christ loved us. And he was for us. I mean, he was so much for us that he left the glory and the majesty of heaven to be robed in human flesh and to live amongst us and suffer the most ignominious death that anyone has ever died to pay a penalty that he did not owe so that you and I could become the children of the living God. You want to know what God thinks about you? He's for you. And when Paul writes about love in chapter 13, He's telling us as believers in Christ within a local assembly, get over yourselves. Stop worrying about what your gift is or how gifted you are and how important you are to the church. The more excellent way, the more important way is that you learn to love each other. And if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you just start loving people around you and your gift will reveal itself in time. The church isn't supposed to function like the corporate world or the sports world. You know, in those kinds of worlds, you pull for one team or one person against the other. But in the church, that's to be the place where we're supposed to be pulling for each other, not against each other. I'm pulling for you. I want the best for you. I want to help you. I want to bless you. I want to build you up. I want to edify you. I want to encourage you. I want to pray for you. All the one another phrases. Because we're supposed to be for each other. And in the Corinthian church, they were against each other. They were fighting each other. They were in conflict and in confusion amongst themselves. 
because they didn't love like God says we're supposed to love. Love doesn't back up and say, hmm, she got what she deserves. He got what he deserves. Love backs up and says, you know what? I don't want that for them. I want the best for them, and I'm going to help them to find that in their lives. To love somebody is to be for somebody. I want to read to you from a paraphrase of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Please, it's a paraphrase. But the paraphrase says it so clearly that you cannot miss. Philippians chapter 2 is where the Bible talks about Jesus leaving the glory of heaven and robing himself in human flesh. He didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped and held on to, but he willingly and sacrificially let go of what he had in heaven to robe himself in that human flesh, though without sin. Listen to what it says, Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Think about what we have in Christ, the encouragement he has brought us, the comfort of his love, our sharing in his spirit, and the mercy and kindness he has shown us. If you enjoy these blessings, then do what will make my joy complete, Paul says. Agree with each other and show your love for each other. Be united in your goals and in the way you think. And whatever you do, don't let selfishness or pride be your guide. Be humble and honor others more than yourselves. Don't be interested only in your own life, but care about the lives of others too. We walk into church and the only person we've thought about since we got on the ground, since we got up to get dressed to come to churches, ourselves. We've paid no attention to the people that are around us. We've had no concern about their burdens or their brokenness. We've had no interest in, in engaging with anybody other than the people we already know and engage with every week. And people come and they say, that church, wow, they got a lot of good things going on, but I don't feel the love in that congregation. The church is, is a family. Do you get that? The, the, the church is a family where we love one another. It's not a function to mark, mark off our to-do list for the week. It's where we make ourselves vulnerable to each other and we stop long enough to care about those around us who are hurting. A church is about belonging. And nobody wants to belong somewhere if they don't feel loved when they're there. Who wants to become a part of something where they don't feel loved? This past week, an article came across the desk of all of our pastoral staff. It's an article written about J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer, is, uh, he was one time the, uh, he's 50 years old, he was one time the which I consider to be a young pastor, by the way. Uh, he was one time the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he pastors the church, the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. It's a mega church, 10,000 plus people, multiple locations. I can't even figure out how they do that. I don't know what you do with 10,000 people. But he's one of the movers and shakers, uh, if you will, in, in, uh, in Baptist life. But in this article, it's talking about his church, and I want you to listen to him as he's preaching to his church. He says, to his congregation, there's something powerful about showing love to somebody that the world says is not worthy of love. Church, this ought to be the place where people from various ethnicities and classes and backgrounds put their arms around each other and love each other. Is that what people experience here, he asks his congregation? How quickly, he goes on, do you reach out and talk to somebody who looks alone? He continues, so many people complain that they went to some church and nobody ever talked to them. 
And then I summarize. He went on to suggest that the seven minutes before the worship service begins and the seven minutes after the worship service ends should be designated as times for making those who appear to be lonely feel welcomed. That's about to get really close here. So listen carefully. He told his church that he gets irritated when people come to worship services late and leave five minutes before the congregation is dismissed. It's not that I'm mad, he said. It's that you're missing part of the service. It's that you treat church like it's a religious show instead of a welcoming family that you're a part of. And then a little bit later he wrote, an important part of demonstrating the gospel is how we treat people in church. And that, he says, requires presence. You have to be there. Those that are still sitting at home and have no providential reason for doing so are missing the meaning of what church is all about. It's not just about the singing and it's not just about the preaching. It is about the interaction and the caring and the loving that is expressed between the members of the body of Christ when they gather with one another. It's about the love that we share for one another. It's about looking around us and recognizing that I've been sitting in this same spot for the last 100 years, and I still don't know the names of people that are down at the other end of the pew or a few rows back, because once I sit down, well, I've become a pillar of salt, a pillar of stone, and I'm not moving. And yet people come, and they're desperately in need of being loved. 1 Corinthians 13 is where Paul is telling the believers in the church at Corinth to stop your divisiveness and start loving each other as you're commanded to love each other. What did Jesus tell his disciples in the upper room before he left them in John 13, 35? He said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Do we want the world to know that we are followers of Jesus Christ? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. But when you come in pointing out people's faults and their failings, and you come out putting people down rather than lifting them up, when you come, out and you, when you come in and you sit down and you pay no attention to anybody else other than the people you've spoken to for the last 100 years, we're failing to love in the way that God intends us to love as a church. Are you for the people who are here today? Or as they will say in the country, are you against them? Are you for them today? Or are you against them? Do you care whether they get built up? Or are you only here for yourself? Mark it off the list. I've done my duty for the week. I can move on with whatever else I want to do. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 addresses that very attitude. And I want to talk about it in three ways. and Maybe we can move through this quickly. First of all, love is essential. Love is essential. I want you to think back with me for a moment in 2020, in the pandemic, and all of the discussion that went on actually all the fighting that went on, about what businesses were essential. Well, you got to have a pharmacy, you got to have a doctor, you got to be able to go to the grocery store. There were, there were places that were designated as essential. These were essential to the ongoing of life. Other things, you got to shut down. Restaurants, shut down. We don't need you. Other things were shut down. What was essential? What is essential? to the life of a church. It's not how gifted we are. What is essential to the life of a church is the love that we share with one another and that we give to one another. That's what's essential to the functioning of a healthy church. He uses five spectacular spiritual gifts, all of them that come out of chapter 12. 
to illustrate how essential love is to the functioning of the church. He uses tongues. He uses prophecy. He uses knowledge. He uses faith. And he uses giving. And in those three opening verses, he's using exaggeration, what we would call hyperbole. He's using hyperbole or exaggeration to make his point. It's essential. Love is essential. It's, it's more important than the gifts. He talks about the tongues of men and of angels. That, that's hyperbole. What is the language of the angels? I know some people say that it's a heavenly language that no human speaks. But that's not what he's talking about. He's using hyperbole and exaggeration. He's saying no matter whether it's human language or it's the language of angels. By the way, every time you see an angel that's speaking in the Bible and it's recorded for us, they always are speaking in the language of the people to whom they're speaking. He's talking about language. And he's using this exaggeration of, you know, humans that are made a little lower than the angels or even the angels themselves. If you speak with tongues but you don't have love, you're just making a lot of noise. You're just a big gong or a big cymbal in the middle of uh, nothing that's supposed to be sounding. You're not even in your place at the right time playing at the right time. He goes on and he uses the word all, all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith and all my goods. Four times, all mysteries. If I knew everything, I understood everything. If I had all knowledge, I, I had the smarts of the smartest there are. If I had all faith, could believe God for anything. I had all my goods, gave all my goods to the poor so that I had nothing left. He's using exaggeration. He's using hyperbole. That's my point. He's trying to help you to understand love is essential. It doesn't matter how much giftedness you may have. It doesn't matter if God has chosen to give you multiple gifts. And you're functioning in the church, and you're, you're, you know the church thinks, or you think, that the church couldn't function without you. And Paul says, do you understand that your gifts aren't as important as you think they are? What's really important is how you love the people of the church. It's an exaggeration because he wants you to know that more important than anything else, what is the more excellent way is that we love each other. Let me see if I can put it in our vernacular and see if you catch my one statement that's going to make some of you angry and some of you super happy. It'd be like me saying this. If I could build huge arenas and pack them out with spine-tingling miracles, healings, and wonders, and my band produced Grammy-winning worship albums, and I didn't have love, it would be worthless. If I had the voice of Adrian Rogers, and if you don't know who that is, it's an old-time preacher with this incredible baritone voice. But if you had the voice of Adrian Rogers, the rhetoric of Charles Swindoll, the evangelistic zeal of Billy Graham, and the camera crews of Bill Gaither or Charles Stanley, and I didn't have love, I'd be nothing. If I knew how many angels could fit on the head of a pen, if I could bring all Republicans and Democrats together and know a way that Marshall University could, meet, could beat WVU every time they meet in a sports competition and did not have love, it would be futile. If I could explain how to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility, why your father abused you, why your son or daughter died, why God allowed your life to be turned upside down, and a host of other things, but I didn't have love, it would be worthless. Because without love, all I know and do only frustrates and irritates. It never soothes or bless us. Do you get the exaggeration? Do you see what Paul's saying in these three opening verses? He's not telling you there's some kind of heavenly language that you're supposed to be praying for God to give you. He's using exaggeration and he's saying, look guys, 
You, you got all of this potential. You got all of this giftedness. But the one thing you're missing is a love for each other. And the missing of the love for each other is the reason why your church isn't functioning the way it's supposed to function. Love each other. Because without love, you, you can play concerts. You can be the best drummer and guitarist. You can be the best you can be the best praise team there is. You can be the best out on the parking lots or as greeters. But if you're not loving the people, you're going through the motions. You're doing a function and you're checking it off. And you're, you're doing what your duty is. And then you're going on down the road to do whatever else you want to do. We are supposed to be for each other. I'm supposed to be here today looking at you and saying, how can I help you? How can I bless you? What can I do for you? How can I minister to you? I care about you. I'm interested in you. I want to pray for you. I want to bless you. I'm for you. Are you down? Come on, let's get through this. We can do it. Because love is essential. But then secondly, love is evident. In verses 4 to 8, he talks about how love is demonstrable. It's recognizable. You can see when people are showing Christian love to one another. And you can see it by the way they treat each other. Some people hold things over other people's heads to the day they die. That's not love. That's not Christian love. Christian love seeks to be for the other individual. And by the way, in verses 4 to 8, we're going to walk through these quickly in a moment. In verses 4 to 8, it's interesting that he spends more time on the things that love does not do than on the things that love does do. And the reason because he's thinking about the Corinthian church and he's thinking about all the things where they do not love like they should love. He begins with two positives in verse 4. First one is long-suffering and kind. The opposites of each other, long-suffering. To be long-suffering is the capacity to be wronged without retaliating. You ever been wronged? Did you retaliate? That wasn't love. To be kind, that's the opposite. One is you absorb something. The other is you give out something. You absorb the wrong and you give out goodwill in its place. You're kind in your response to others. By the way, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, those two qualities, long-suffering and kindness, those two qualities are specifically attributed to the Almighty God. You know when you're long-suffering and you're kind, you're being like God. And then he launches into a list of eight things that love does not do, all of which speak to something that he's already addressed earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, it does not envy. It does not envy. You remember in chapter 3, verse 3? Paul says, I'd like to write to you as the mature saints you should be, but I have to write to you like a bunch of babies. I have to give to you the milk of the word instead of the meat of the word because you're filled with envy and jealousy toward each other. He continues, it does not parade itself. Th that echoes the, the reprimands that Paul gave to the Corinthians when they were boasting about what was the, or who was their favorite preacher. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And then the super spiritual, I'm of Jesus, parading themselves, puffed up, he says in the next one. It's not puffed up. We, we looked at this word. It's found several times, five or six times in this letter alone. We talked about the puffer fish that puffs itself up. That's the idea. You walk around. We used to have a, a little phrase for this when I, I was a kid, when I was a teenager. It's called the BMOC. You know what that is? The big man on campus syndrome. It is not puffed up. It doesn't walk around like it's the big man on, camp, uh, on campus syndrome. It does not behave rudely. It continues. 
To behave rudely means to behave in shameful ways. In Romans 1.27, it speaks of shameful acts of male homosexual intimacy. But in this letter alone, he's talking about the sexual misconduct that was discussed in chapter 5, where a man had his father's, where he had his stepmother, his, his, it was his stepmother, his father's wife. Shameful. Shameful activity. He goes on a little later. He talks about women that are prophesying with their heads uncovered. That's shameful, he says, because you're distorting the order that's in the church. And then he comes to chapter 11, a passage that I didn't preach to you this series, but I've preached on many times before, about the Lord's Supper. You come with the love feast that precedes the observance of communion. And those of you who are supposed to be bringing food so that nobody goes hungry. Everybody gets some, but the rich get in line first, and they pile it on their plate so that when the poor come behind, there's nothing left over, and they have to go home hungry. Some of you will do that next Sunday night. Maybe not now. But you'll do that next Sunday night. Pile it on, man. Let's make sure that we get all we want before anybody else gets what we want does not behave itself rudely, does not seek its own. This repeats precisely the language that Paul used in chapter 10, verse 24, about the idle meat controversy. Remember what he said? He said, if meat makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, meat that's offered to idols. I will never eat meat again. And he says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. I am for my brother. A little later, chapter 10, verse 33, he says, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. In other words, I, I'm for them. If giving up meat will save them from stumbling, I'll gladly give it up. He says, it's not provoked in verse 5. That means it's not easily angered. It's the picture of someone getting stirred up. It's the idea of a smoldering fire that gets stirred up into a raging inferno. I'm not that smoldering fire just waiting for somebody to pour fuel on me so that I'll explode into anger. He says, thinks no evil. I'm going to stop here for a moment because the word thinks is an accounting term. It's what you bookkeepers do when you write down the details of all the expenditures and all the income. You write down all these details. It thinks no evil. In other words, I'm not going to make decisions based on something a person has ever done wrong or failed to do right. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite verses, and I hope you'll practice it for me if you don't practice it for anybody else. I hope you'll practice it for me. It's 1 Peter 4, 8. And above all things, he says, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I'm glad Mary doesn't tell you all of my failures and all of my faults. By the way, you should be thankful your pastor doesn't tell everything he knows about you either. Because love covers a multitude of faults. You don't, you don't hold on to the wrong. Love doesn't seek to expose others' faults and failings. It seeks to forgive them and to cover them. He goes on. It does not rejoice in iniquity, where iniquity is the idea of injustice. And he's thinking back to chapter 6 where they were taking one another to court and they were suing each other at court for small claims kinds of stuff. But rejoices in the truth. In juxtaposition to iniquity, meaning injustice, it's the sense of moral truth. Doing what is right, doing what is righteous. He doesn't rejoice in injustice, things that are wrong and shouldn't be done. He rejoices in things that are morally right and morally good. And then he says, bears all things. 
The word bears means to cover with silence. Just write that out in the corner of your Bible, edge of your Bible. It means to cover with silence. Do, do you know that sometimes the hardest thing to say is nothing at all? Today we get on social media and we blast people. We blast the church. We think that's our proper way to exercise our free speech. And in the process, the world looks in and says, you know, those people don't love each other very much, do they? Just to sort of break the tension for a moment. There was a couple celebrating their 68th wedding anniversary, and they were asked at their church to share a word of wisdom about how married couples could sustain a long marriage. The husband said his number one piece of advice for husbands was to keep your mouth shut. The church erupted with laughter, of course, and then his wife was asked what her number one piece of advice was for a long marriage, and she said, keep in mind, you'll be right as much as you're wrong, and wrong as much as you're right, and in both cases, keep your mouth shut. Pretty good advice. I've been doing that for 47 years <laughs> next Sunday. Keep your mouth shut. That's what he's talking about. Bears all things. It, mean, it means literally to cover with silence. When, when someone in the nursery with you, and when, when someone in the nursery is short with you and you don't respond in kind, that's love. When someone in the music ministry hurts your feelings, but you choose to believe the best about them anyway, that's love. When someone doesn't speak to you in the hallway and you decide to overlook it, that's love. Not when you go to the social media and you post it, not even knowing the details of what you're saying. There was a lady who said to her pastor, I don't necessarily understand the decision the leadership recently made, but I trust our leaders. That's love. Bears all things. And then he breaks out into this, it not only bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. But please, we shouldn't think of love as infinitely uh, credulous or utterly indiscriminate or foolishly gullible in its believing and hoping. What he wants you to understand by those, those three phrases is that there is no limit to its faith and there is no limit to its hope and there is no limit to its endurance. I am for you. I will be for you. We're going to go together. He wants you to know that in essence, love doesn't give up on people. Think about the prodigal son. Daddy, give me what's my inheritance, which basically was, I don't want you in my life anymore. He ends up in a pig pen, and he comes to himself, and he said, I got to go home to my father. And who's been going out every day for his son? Who's been looking over the horizon every day for his son? Who is the one who sees his son coming over the hillside and runs to him? He's for the son. His father is the one. His father is the one. I never give up. He never gave up. I could tell you stories about my mother who never gave up on me. But I'll tell you a story I heard this week. The man's been visiting our church, and he said, I'd like to meet with you, Pastor. Those are meetings you don't know. Is this a friendly meeting, or is this an unfriendly meeting? I'm... It was a friendly meeting, by the way. And he was telling me about his life history and some of the story of his life, and he told me about a member of his family who was the mother of five children whose husband died. She moved her children from where they lived to Huntington, because when they grew up, she wanted them to go through Marshall University. That meant now she's a single mother. 
She's having to make ends meet on her own. She's having to raise her children by herself. But he said she never lost faith or stopped trusting God. Her son went into World War II as a pilot. He was shot down over enemy territory. He had to hike across the enemy lines through the enemy gunfire and all that was going on amongst the enemy and not be caught miles and miles and miles. And he said my, his mother never stopped believing God for her son. And then he gave me the book that's the story of this man that I'm looking forward to read when I get a few minutes. That's what he's talking about. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's just somebody that never gives up. I keep believing. I keep trusting. I look, keep looking for good things. I, I believe better's coming. I'm for you. I'm not against you. And then he finishes by saying, love never fails. Love isn't like the spiritual gifts that are temporary. Love is something that goes on and outlasts everything. Matter of fact, some of you are sitting here today because you were somewhere, maybe in a gutter somewhere, and you remembered your mother or your grandmother, maybe your daddy or your granddaddy, that loved you with all their hearts, and you couldn't get away from that love. It never fails. That brings me to say, thirdly, love is eternal. I can't develop all of 813. My time's almost up. But love is eternal. Spiritual gifts will become unnecessary one day. But there are these three great virtues. He talks about them in verse 13. Faith, hope, and love. Now let me remind you that faith one day will become sight. And hope one day will become reality. But love endures forever. The love that we have for God and the love that we're to share with one another is going to grow deeper and stronger and richer as we pass through this life and as we pass into the next life and we're in the presence of Christ. That love is going to go on forever and forever such that Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is more important than any of the spiritual gifts and the most important virtue. In Colossians 3.14, he says that love binds us all together in perfect harmony. In chapter 13, he says that without love, ministry has limited value. When you get to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he sums up the whole of our Christian ethic when he says faith expressing itself in love. Or when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Love is the root out of which all of these others become the fruit. So that the most important thing, Paul says, for believers to value and to seek is to become a loving person towards other believers. Do you know the people's names around you? Did you stop and speak to anybody coming in? Did you get here late and you ran in the last minute? Are you going to leave before the prayer is even over? Let me finish. In 1991, there was a book written by Dave Simmons. The book is entitled Dad the Family Coach. If you can find it, it's a it's a used book. You'll have to find it in a used bookstore. It's a great little book about keeping your kids on your team. But he writes in that book about an illust a, 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 a situation that happened with his children. And I hate it when I start rushing because I start stumbling. But he writes about uh, something that happened with he and his children. And I want to read it to you. He writes, I took Helen, that's his eight-year-old daughter, and Brandon that's his five-year-old son, to the Cloverleaf Mall in Hattiesburg to do a little shopping. As we drove up, we spotted a Peterbilt 18-wheeler parked with a big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo. The kids jumped up in a rush and asked, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? Sure, I said, flipping them both a quarter. Remember, this is 1991. Flipping them both a quarter before walking into Sears. Sears. 
They bolted away, and I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. He wrote that the petting zoo consisted of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids, he says, pay their money and stay in the enclosure enraptured with the squirmy little critters while their moms and dads shop. He said that a few minutes later, I turned around and I saw Helen walking along beside me. I was shocked to see she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognizing my error, he says, I bent down and asked her what was wrong. She looked up at me in those big, giant, lipid, brown eyes and said sadly, Well, Daddy, it cost 50 cents, so I gave Brandon my quarter. He goes on. Then she said the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. She repeated our family motto. Our family motto is, love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no, no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. She had watched my wife take my steak and say, love is action. She had watched both of her parents do and say, love is action, for years around the house. She had heard and seen, love is action, and now she had incorporated it into her lifestyle, her little lifestyle. It had become a part of her. Then he asked the question, what do you think I did? Well, not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it. Because she knew the whole family motto. She knew the whole family motto. It's not love is action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always, he says, pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love gives. It doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience that total family motto, love is sacrificial action. <laughs> the average Baptist sits down in a pew. A guest comes down the aisle. They don't know who they are. They don't know their name. And rather than say, let me move down a little bit and make room for you. Says nothing at all and sits there like a stone and refuses to move. Where is the love? Are you all with me? Where is the sacrificial love where it costs us something? Pastor, I like my spot on this upper lot, even if it means parking in the visitors' parking spaces when visitors need them. Even if it means sitting in the pew and speaking to almost nobody other than the same old people I speak to every single week. Paul says, you Corinthians, you need to learn to love. By the way, this is a love that is produced supernaturally. Actually, Romans says it's poured out into our hearts. It's produced by the surrender of ourselves to the Spirit of God that enables us to love the fruit of the Spirit, to love as he says to love. I'm not asking you to dredge this up. I'm asking you to get right with God. And say, God, produce this love and show this love through me.
so that there's three closing statements. Number one, love isn't about us, it's about others. Well, pastor, if I could, I I just come to church and and I'm just waiting for somebody to love me, then I'm going to start loving others. You've got it backwards. When you start loving others, you'll discover how people will love you in return. It's not about us. It's about others. Number two, it's not about emotions. Love is not about emotions. It's about actions. These are verbs. These are verbs. These are actions. Love is a self-sacrificing action. Love is not about emotions. It's about actions. And number three, Please hear me. Love isn't about showing off. It's about showing up and saying, I'm here because I'm for you. I'm for you. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to harm you. I don't want to put you down. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to tell people what I know about you. I'm for you. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to care for you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to strengthen you. I'm here to pray for you. I'm here to edify you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. 